The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So if you're anything like me, you have some particular people that you just find completely annoying. And it's not a good thing. It's not a godly thing. I'm not saying it's like Jesus at all, but I have folks who I find just unendingly annoying. None of you, none of you for that. Well, maybe some of you, if you fit into like these big bucket categories. So one category of people I find endlessly annoying are um, Dallas Mavericks fans. Uh, because they always overhype their team. They never p- pay attention to anything happening in basketball outside of Dallas. And they overhype how good Dirk Nowitzki actually was. Like he's just not that good. Uh, then I had this experience when I was in college. My senior year of college, I had two dates in the span of seven days. As I had a really good job the summer before my senior year, so I'd been away, I'd been able to tuck away some money to actually ask girls out on a date. And when you're at a Christian college, like there's a lot of pressure to like not leave single. So I tucked away all of this money to ask girls out on dates. And and the second date of that week uh, was with Rochelle, who is now my wife, so you know how that turned out. But the first date was with this girl who was a year younger than me. So I had known her for about three years and she was really smart, really cute. Um, And I had been working up my nerve to ask her out for three years. And so I decided that I was going to do this. Now this was, you know, back in the last century, in the 90s, when guys actually asked girls out on dates not sent a text to say, would you like to hang out sometime? Like an actual date, like a grown freaking person. So anyway, I said, let's go out. And so we go out and we're having a meal. And I notice as we're eating that she scrapes her fork on the bottom of her teeth when she eats like this. And you could hear it. And so I thought, okay, that's one time. Could happen to anybody. But then she did it again and again and again. And I thought, there is no way. Like no matter how cute she is, no matter how fun she is, no matter how smart she is, I can never have another meal with this person in my entire life. And I meant it because there were years where she lived in Houston and we were both in youth ministry and she would, you know, it's like send me an email. I was like, oh, we should get together and just hang out, like go have lunch sometime. And I was like, no, like <laughs> if it requires the two of us coffee, maybe but we're not eating like can like a soft pastry. I might be able to make something work, but if it's you and utensils, I'm out. But then there's another person that kind of annoys me and you've probably had some of these people. You've met them for a meal. 
like probably like for dinner and they show up and they say something like, I'm so hungry, I forgot to eat. How do you forget to eat? Like this is not a voluntary response. Your body actually needs food, needs fuel to just do things like survive, like to breathe, to move in the world. You need to fuel it with something. You don't forget to eat. So I had a, a roommate my senior year in college uh, and he would come home at the end of the day and he would like open the fridge and be like, oh, I'm so hungry, I forgot to eat. And I would ask him the question that I just asked you. How do you forget to eat? And so he told me one day, he got up, went to class in the morning where we went to school. Uh, there was chapel every day at 11 o'clock that all the students went to. So I went to class and I went to chapel and then I had to go to work. And things were really hectic at work and I got really busy. Somebody didn't show up, so it was really crazy. And so I just got home and I hadn't eaten all day. I forgot to eat. Now, some of you who know me well know that I'm kind of a stickler for words because words actually matter. And the problem with his argument was not that he forgot to eat. Like your, your body has ways to remind you to eat. What actually happened was he got busy and distracted and he didn't notice that he was hungry. Right, because there are a lot of reasons to not eat. Like we oftentimes choose to not eat. Like maybe uh, you're fasting for something or maybe you're doing intermittent fasting and you only eat during a certain amount of hours. You're choosing not to eat. The holidays are coming up. And so you're gonna get together with your family for Thanksgiving dinner and that's gonna be big and it's gonna have all of your favorites. So maybe you go the whole day and you choose not to eat or you're going to a party and you choose not to eat. We choose not to eat all the time. That's different than not noticing that you're hungry when you choose not to eat. And so if you've been around Ecclesia for the last several weeks, you know that we're in a series on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the series of statements that Jesus makes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And he goes on with the rest of the sermon. If you want to know more about the Sermon on the Mount, we have this great resource page on our website <coughs> where there are some extra teaching and resources about the Sermon on the Mount. You, you will see me enter into my YouTube stardom days. Like this is a career that I'm trying to, a side hustle I'm trying to kick off. Just talking about the Sermon on the Mount. But what Jesus preaches about both in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the Gospels is this idea that the kingdom of God is available. And this, the Beatitudes aren't a series of if-then statements. Like if you do this, then this other thing will happen. It's not cause and effect. Jesus is looking out on the people who are in his immediate vicinity and he is noticing that this is where you are. This is where you live. This is what you're experiencing. And this is how God is blessing you in that experience. That no matter how bad things look, no matter how bad things feel to you, in life's worst moments, the kingdom of God is available to you. And so he says in today's beatitude, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. And the reality of our existence is that most of the people that I know and most of the people that you know will never truly be hungry. Like we, we do know some people who suffer from food scarcity. We know plenty of people that don't have the access to food that they need, that live maybe in food deserts. But we'll know very few people. Most of the folks we know throughout our lives will never truly know hunger. We know hunger pangs. Those are those things that signal to us that it's time to eat. We know delayed eating. We don't know hunger. Because hunger is when your survival depends on when or whether or not you will eat again and eat again soon. Hunger is distress. Hunger is your body lacking the necessary nutrients it needs, that it is shutting down because it doesn't have the fuel that it needs. Hunger is not when you or I forget to eat. Hunger is when there's nothing to eat and it's likely that there's not going to be anything to eat. And Jesus comes along and he says, that kind of hunger, some people hunger that way and thirst that way for righteousness. That there are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness the way a starving person hungers and thirsts for food. For 18 years, Larry Nasser was the doctor for the United States national gymnastics team, the female team. And in that time, he used his position and power to abuse hundreds of young women on the team. So in 2027, he was sentenced to 60 years of federal prison because of his crimes. And so at his sentencing, one of his victims, a young woman named Rachel Den Hollander, read a victim impact statement. And I won't read the whole thing to you because parts of it are very graphic. And I know that in a room with this many people in it, that there are some people here who have suffered abuse. And so I wouldn't want to say anything that's going to be unnecessarily triggering for you. But I do want you to hear part of what Rachel Den Hollander said in her victim impact statement. This is how she starts. She says, there are two major purposes in our criminal justice system. The pursuit of justice and the protection of the innocent. Neither of these purposes can be met if anything less than the maximum available sentence under the plea agreement is imposed upon Larry for his crimes. Not because the federal sentence he will already serve is lacking, but because the sentence rendered today will send a message across this country, a message to every victim 
and a message to every perpetrator. I realize you have many factors to consider when you fashion your sentence, but I submit to you that the preeminent question in this case, as you reach a decision about how best to satisfy the dual aims of this court is the same question that I asked Judge Neff to consider. How much is a little girl worth? How much is a young woman worth? So you can go online and read the rest of it. But as someone who has had people who's very close to them suffer from abuse, when I hear Rachel's victim impact statement, what I hear is someone who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Because maybe for many of us, when we first heard or when someone first opened Matthew 5 and talked about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that they somehow turned that into a teaching about how if you wanted your life to be better, then what you actually needed to do is just go out and be more righteous. That the problem is that you weren't pious enough or you weren't holy enough. And so if you wanted to be more righteous, you could become more righteous and then you would be filled. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. When Jesus talks about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, for righteousness, he's talking about something completely different. This word that's translated righteousness in most of the New Testaments, this Greek word dikaiosune also means justice. And Jesus is saying that there are people in the world who hunger and thirst for justice and they will be filled which is a word that we desperately need because you know what I know that you have tried before. You've looked out at the world and you've seen places where things aren't right. They aren't the way they should be. And no one should have to experience this. And you've tried and they did a little bit of good, but every time it seems that you fix something, there pops up 10 other things that need to be fixed. And so you just get tired. So what's the point? And where's God in all of this? Sometimes it feels like you care about it more than God cares about it. And Jesus is saying, if you feel that way, you will be filled. And sometimes it's overwhelming and crushing to look at our world. And so we just kind of hang on till the end, feeling like there's not very much that we could do. And Jesus says, you will be filled. This is a word for all of us who feel like we have done our best and it just wasn't good enough. My friend Jason Miller talks about it this way in his book, When the World Breaks. He says, Jesus has a blessing for people who hear the screaming inside, who know in their bodies and brains and feelings and souls that there's a gap between what is and what should be. It's a blessing for refugees whose homelands have been turned into wastelands by the powers of empires that have treated them like collateral damage in their quest for domination. It's a blessing for women who have had to play along with the patriarchy. It's a blessing for anyone who wakes up and discovers that we have so far to go and that we're all in this together. That longing inside of you, 
for a better world. It is from God. And it will be satisfied from God. And that's crucial to remember because whenever we begin to talk about righteousness and unrighteousness, justice and injustice, the easiest thing to do is that just incorporate or to baptize our own view of what is right and unright, what is good and bad, what is just and unjust. And most of that has to do with what is just and what is unjust for me. And I know this because I have a wife who teaches school and daughters who are in school. So Kate, my youngest daughter, calls me on Thursday. Dad, can I complain for a minute? Okay, you know the last math test? Well, I did really well on that math test, but most of the class failed that math test. So what the teacher wants to do is she wants on the test for the next unit to include questions from the last unit, but I don't want to have to study the last unit and this unit because I learned the stuff from the last unit and I need to focus on the stuff from this unit because I don't want to do bad on the next test because I didn't have enough time to study the new stuff because I had to go back and study the old stuff. Can you call my teacher? On Friday, my wife comes home and all day she's had parent-teacher conferences. And you can tell a lot about parents from how they handle parent-teacher conferences. And how were they? Oh, they were fine. They were fine all except the last one, which is always the way it happens. Well, what happened? A parent sits down across the desk from her and she says, I need you to explain to me why you gave my daughter this grade on the quiz. Well, you guys are really smart. You know what I know. Teachers don't give grades. Students earn grades. And Rochelle explained, well, there were 10 questions on the quiz and your daughter missed six of them. That's why she failed the quiz. And there are a thousand different ways a thousand different arenas where we look out over the grand expanse of the world and we decide what's right and wrong what's just and unjust and there's nothing easier than to baptize our own view of justice when we are religious people because religious people can make anything seem righteous or unrighteous. And I've told you before, I've got somewhere in the neighborhood of $100,000 worth of theological education, and I can open the Bible and justify just about anything. But you don't need $100,000 worth of theological education to do that. You just have to come to believe that the way you see the world, what you want in the world, that that's righteous. And over the course of history, religious people believing that what they thought was righteous has led to as many deaths as anything else. Jonathan Sachs writes about it this way in his book, Not in God's Name. He says, much has been said and written in recent years about the connection between religion and violence. 
Three answers have emerged. The first, religion is the major source of violence. Therefore, if we seek a more peaceful world, we should abolish religion. The second, religion is a source, is not a source of violence. People are made violent, as Hobbes says, by fear, glory, and the perpetual and restless desire for power after power that seeth us only in death. Religion has nothing to do with it. It may be used by manipulative leaders to motivate people to wage wars precisely because it inspires people to heroic acts of self-sacrifice. But religion itself teaches us to love and forgive, not to hate and fight. The third answer is their religion, yes. Our religion, no. We are for peace, they are for war. And just a cursory reading of history will tell you that every major world religion has used one of those arguments to justify doing unrighteous acts and calling them righteous. And so before we go off into the world and decide that this is the righteous act that God has called me to, we need to be very sure because our capacity for self-deception is so great. And Job, when Job talks about it, this is how he puts it. He says, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress. Shorthand for that is, God always does what is right. And when Jesus talks about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it's not a theory. It's not some type of ethereal teaching. Jesus is talking to a bunch of women and men who at that very moment are living under Roman occupation. The Romans levied heavy taxes on the Jews. They could nearly kill them at will. You remember when Jesus was born and Herod decides, you know, to fix this problem, the easiest thing to do, let's just go ahead and kill all the boys under two. Do you remember Barabbas, the criminal who was exchanged for Jesus? Barabbas was a part of a group of people who lived up in the mountains and they would just run down from the mountains into towns and cities every now and then and they would stab and kill Roman soldiers and run back up. There are two Simons in the Gospels, Simon Peter and Simon the Zealot. Do you know what zealots were? armed resistors to the Roman power. Jesus knows what it is to look out at people who are experiencing a world that they don't want to experience and say that hunger for righteousness, even though it doesn't look like it right now, will be filled I know I've shared before with you the story of a group called the White Rose. The White Rose were a group of students at the University of Munich in the early days of World War II. Mostly they were Christian students and they had become convinced that Hitler represented a darker power rising in Germany and across the world. And so as part of their resistance, they produced these leaflets calling attention to the fact that there actually were 
camps that Jews were being sent to and being killed. And two of the students at the University of Munich were these two siblings, Hans and Sophie Scholl. Hans and Sophie Scholl went out one day to distribute a leaflet called leaflet number six. And they were spotted, captured, and put on trial. They were found guilty, and the very same day, because the Nazis did not waste time, both Hans and Sophie Scholl were beheaded. But leaflet number six found its way into allied hands. And the allies printed thousands and thousands and thousands of copies and then airdropped them all over Germany. Witnesses at the time said the allies dropped so many copies of leaflet number six that it looked like rain coming down. And this was part of their resistance. They would hand out leaflets and they would spray paint anti-Nazi graffiti all over Munich and all over the university. So years later, an American lawyer and historian named Willem Stringfellow traveled to Germany to meet with former resistors and find out what it was that kept them going, why they did what they did. Because there is no way that the things that they were doing, handing out leaflets, painting graffiti, there's no way that that could stand up against the Nazi war machine, the Nazi government. And after meeting with survivors of the Nazi regime, some who had been arrested, some who escaped arrest by traveling to other countries, this is what he wrote. He says, the resistance consisted day after day of small efforts to calculate their actions, abetting escapes, circulating mimeograph news, hiding fugitives, obtaining money or needed documents, engaging in various forms of non-cooperation with the occupying authorities or the quizzling bureaucrats, wearing armbands, disrupting official communications. In terms of odds against the Nazi efficiency and power and violence and vindictiveness would seem to render their witness ridiculous. The risk for them of persecution, arrest, torture, confinement, death, were so disproportionate to any concrete results that could practically be expected. Yet these persons persevered in their audacious, extemporaneous, fragile, puny, foolish resistance. Here's what I want you to know. The white rose didn't exist just to topple Hitler. The white rose existed out of a fundamental belief that regardless of how things looked, God was bringing justice. And I don't know how it looks for you in your home or your school or your workplace when you look around our communities, our cities, our country, our world, when it seems like everything is against you and it feels like trying to do the least little thing is like holding the tide back with a teaspoon. Jesus says that hunger, 
will be filled. And maybe not immediately, but definitely, ultimately. And what you need to do in this moment is not become busy or distracted. What we're to do is not to not notice, but to stay hungry. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.